Christian, good morning. Let me ask you a question as all of our little wiggly worshipers are working their way out. It's wonderful to have kids. I like to hear them scream in nursery. I mean, not for the workers' sake, but that, that means it's signs of life and growth, isn't it? So thank the Lord for that. The question I want to ask you this morning is, have you ever got to the place in your Christian life where you were just ready to quit? Ready to quit. In other words, I could ask it this way. Has, has God ever disappointed you? I mean, you know, maybe you thought to yourself, well, you know, I'm going to get this job and this job is going to meet my needs. And you go and you take that job and you find out that it wasn't exactly what you thought it would be and it actually made life worse than if you'd have stayed where you were. Or perhaps you longed for this relationship and you thought, oh, if I could only have a relationship with this person, then my whole life would change and everything would be better only to be involved with that person and realize that it wasn't exactly the rose-colored glasses you were seeing. Or you decided that, you know what, I'm going to live for Jesus and I'm going to expect and anticipate Him to work in my life and I want Him to use me in a great way and I want God to change people's lives through me and all of a sudden you give your heart to Jesus and you're living for Him and life seems like a tidal wave hits you. You get sick, you might lose your job, you wreck your car, something happens and it seems like disaster happens. And you sit back and you say, God, here I dedicated my life to you and told you I wanted to live for you and serve you and now you let this happen to me? I mean, what kind of a God are you? And then perhaps you listen to a podcast where somebody asks the logical question. And this is the logical question. If I were teaching a philosophy class, this is what I would ask you. Is God all-powerful? You would say yes. Can God do all things? You would say yes. Is God good? You would say yes. Can God change all circumstances in your life? You would say yes. And then I would ask you this question, then why does he let evil if he in fact loves you and is good? Why would he let that happen? I mean, if God loves you so much and God is all-powerful and God can change all things, then why would he allow evil, persecution, suffering, and other things to happen in your life? Why would he do that if he was good? And of course, if you were a philosophy class or I was teaching you a theology class, we would let you go on and on and you'd give all your answers and quote scripture back to me. And at the end of the day, we would all stop and say, God is mysterious. And you can throw all the Bible verses you want in Romans 8.28, but at the end of the day, there are a lot of things that you and I just can't answer. And that is where... We come to today when we talk about the need for endurance in the Christian life. Because one thing that we'll discover in life is you'll never figure God out. And if you think God's going to send you an email and answer all your questions as to why bad things happen to God's people, you're not going to get that answer. The only thing you're going to get from God's Word is this. My people walk by faith, not by sight, and not by answers. They walk by faith in my word, believing in me, because we're not home yet. At the end of my message, I'm going to tell you a story about a young man and his wife 
who entered ministry and decided to go far places for God only to discover that disaster awaited. But I'll tell you about that in just a moment. Take God's Word and find Hebrews chapter 10 this morning as we talk about the need for endurance. And as you do that, here's the text this morning, Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. The writer, who most people for years and years held that this was the Apostle Paul who wrote Hebrews, I actually wrote a paper on this, so if you ever want to go to sleep, it'd be a great paper to read. The bottom line is nobody knows who wrote it, but there are indicators in the text that seem to indicate Paul is not the author. Most people believe that Apollos, who was one of Paul's companions, is probably the author, but whoever wrote the book of Hebrews was very knowledgeable of the Old Testament, and they were also not a didactic teacher. He was a preacher. Because there are little nuances throughout the whole book. Now remember, 13 chapters of Hebrews was one long sermon. And throughout this sermon, there are constant, let us, let us, let us. Now, brethren, do this, let us, let us. And his whole argument to these people is, don't walk away from Jesus. I mean, you gave your heart and your life to him, and you thought things were going to go well, and now you're facing persecution. People have plundered your property, they've stolen things, they've persecuted you, and they're telling you to go back to the life of ease. Don't do that. Because if you do that and you walk away from God, there is nothing else left for you. What are you going to do? You accept Christ as your Savior and you're going to go back to something that can't take away your sin? You're going to trust Christ as your Savior and you're going to think that angels are going to deliver you? Christ is better than angels. What are you going to do? Run to Moses and think that the Ten Commandments are going to save you? Christ was better than Moses. Better than the law. Better than the Old Testament covenant. The Ten Commandments can't save you. The old covenant can't save you, only Jesus. What are you going to do? Run to a priesthood where a high priest has to offer a sacrifice for himself and then for the people and sit around and bite his fingernails hoping that intentional sins are passed over for another year? Are you going to do that? Why would you run back to that system when you have a high priest who can be touched in every way and was tempted in every way like you and endured faithful and gave his own life as a sacrifice before God, and stands in his presence, and you have open access to pray and enter right into third heaven. Why would you turn and go back? And this is his exhortation. And in the next message, when I come in, and I'm going to preach on Hebrews chapter 11, these people who knew the Old Testament and were familiar with everyone, he's going to go down a litany list of every person from the Old Testament way before the law of Moses and say this, every person in that list believed God and every one of them died not having their promises and their needs fulfilled. But they all died in faith. And he's going to say this, get this in the Christian life, All of your needs, all of your satisfactions, all of your wants and desires will never be met in this life. If that is your understanding of the Christian life, he's saying, let us draw near to our Savior, realizing that we are not home yet. And we have to live by faith until then, like all of these other people who died waiting on the promise had to do. Hebrews chapter 10 Listen to what he tells them. Now imagine these discouraged people wandering away, but recall the former days 
When after you were enlightened, I could say this, after you were saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Remember when you were first a Christian and things happened in your life, but you were so filled with joy that you were a believer and your sins were paid for, you had eternal life, that when you suffered or somebody made fun of you, you didn't pay a bit of attention to it. He says sometimes being publicly exposed... And you, you all got the picture here? Look at that Christian over there. They left the ways and went with this Jesus guy. He's a Jesus freak. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. In other words, they persecuted your friends and you went over and said, you know what, brother, I'm going to stand here with you. If they're going to make fun of you and our Lord, they're going to make fun of me. They're going to do this to you and our Jesus. They're going to do it to us together. Remember those days. For you had compassion on those Christians, I'm going to interpretively read here, who were put in prison for Jesus' sake. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They threw eggs at your car, scratched it with a key down the side of your paint let the air out of your tires or stabbed them or busted your windshield. You accepted the plundering of your property since you knew, as a Christian, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, look at the text on the screen and answer my question. What is he saying to them? You knew, as a Christian that your worth and your value and where you put identity is not in the junk that you have here in this life. And even if somebody took away everything we had, as much as we appreciate it, we realize that we're not taking a thing with us because the believer lays up his treasure in heaven. And so if they destroy what we have here, what did he say? He says, you knew that you knew yourselves that you had a better possession and one that lasts. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust is corrupt, where a thief can't steal it and it can't be destroyed. You see, as believers, that's what we're to be living for, right? We're to lay up our treasure in heaven. A whole other sermon series. Therefore... Do not throw away your confidence. Now, are y'all listening to me? I ought to to squall this morning. Don't! Can't you hear him preaching? Don't throw away your confidence. You accepted Christ as your Savior. You heard from his word. You know the change that happened in your life. And now some problems come. And because there's some suffering, because there's some problems, because there's some things that you can't answer in your life, you're ready to walk away? Oh, he says, do not throw away your confidence. By the way, here's the reason. Your confidence has a great reward. Do you realize the way you view God in trial and troubles and problems and the way that you endure your attitude, your action and response will actually bring reward in your Christian life? Do you understand that that is laying up treasure in heaven? The way that we deal with 
problems and suffering. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, because, because you have need of endurance. By the way, do you have need of endurance? Do you ever feel, just feel like I'm ready to just quit? I'm, I'm ready to quit. He says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. When you have done the will of God. By the way, what does that mean? What is the will of God? Now, hear me carefully here. The will of God for all of our lives, there's a general will of God that all of us are to accept Christ as Savior, to follow Him, to be faithful to Him. But individually, God has different plans and wills for our life. Some of you may get cancer, like Sharon this morning, and you may have to endure and suffer chemotherapy so the rest of the church and the rest of the world can watch how you suffer. So that at the end of the day, you praise Jesus, not for the cancer, but for the fact that he sustains you and the prayers of his people sustain you, and that you know that this is not the end of life. For a child of God, we have a better home and a better possession. And we will take hold of it one day. Some may have to enter that way through many trials and many problems. Others may go through life and not have trials and problems. They may live their life. They may never struggle or suffer. Their children may never have problems or give them problems. And they may go through life rosy. But others, it may not be that way. They may suffer disappointment, death, discouragement, depression, and on and on the list may go. But this writer says, when that happens to you, don't you quit. You have need of endurance. So that when you've done whatever the will of God is for your life, you may by faith know that you will receive the promise. Four... He quotes Habakkuk here. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come. And when he comes, he will not delay. Our Savior's coming. And when he does, uh, he says, Until then, my righteous one shall live by faith. But when, but, and if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. The one thing we don't want to do is disappoint the heart of God when he disappoints us. Now that doesn't mean we can't tell him, God, we feel like you have just left us, abandoned us. You've let, and he's going to tell it, my child, my child, read my word. I have spoken to you. I am speaking to you. I am with you in trials and persecution and so forth and so on. Do you know that the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, when he wrote that wonderful section in Second Timothy and talked about his suffering and his affliction, he called it the grace of God. God has given me this, this grace. He's entrusted me with this suffering, this pain, this hardship. Oh, thank you God for doing that. Can you believe he could say that? In the midst of his pain and trial, he drew so close to God that he saw every suffering and every problem as a chance for him to give God more glory. And that's why Paul would say, I have poured my life out as a drink offering, and I'm ready to give it up 
because I've fought the, fa- the race, fought the fight, finished the race, and I know that there is a crown laid up for me, and not me, but all others who love his appearing. What a wonderful, wonderful, encouraging section of Scripture. Now the writer says, But we are not of those who shrink back and wither away, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now I need to explain something to you because really I should have went back. There's five warning sections in the book of Hebrews. Five. And all five of those build in progression. So he'll be preaching along and saying, you know, don't run back to the Moses or the angels or whatever. But if you do, here's what's going to happen. Then he gets to the most problematic one in chapter 6, where it talks about, you know, if those who were once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Spirit, if they turn away, there remains no more repentance. And that's a problematic passage, by the way. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 6. By the way, if I ever review a commentary or I ever interview a faculty member on our school's board, and I I head up the Bible department there, so that's my responsibility to interview everybody that teaches us. There's a few passages I always turn to. One is Matthew 24, where it says, He shall endure to the end. He that endures to the end shall be saved. I always ask them, what's that mean? And then I take them to Hebrews chapter 6, where it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, and I ask them, what does that mean? And by and large, their answer in that determines whether or not they'll teach in our New Testament department. Now, you may think I'm awful. Because there are some people, very popular on the radio, that have this view in the Christian life of final salvation. In other words, you can't even know you're a Christian until you get to the end of your life to determine whether or not you were faithful or not. And you all listen to some of them. Because you've sent me some questions from them. Final salvation. Unless you endure faithfully until the end, you'll never know if you are a true believer. By the way, that view never came around until Augustine, the theologian, changed from a dispensationalist to a covenant theologian and went back to Matthew 24 and reinterpreted that. And throughout church history now, they've taken that verse to mean that it applies to the believer. Today and not the nation of Israel. But here's the point in that rabbit trail. There is such thing as a Christian who has truly accepted Christ as their Savior who doesn't finish the Christian life well. Don't you dare walk out of here today thinking that just because somebody that you know just because they're not living like they should, that they're not a believer at all. Don't you, don't you think that? Because you don't know what happened in their heart, and you don't know whether they've trusted Christ as Savior or not, and you don't know what's brought them to the place to where they have lost their endurance. I've shared this openly before. There, has, there was a time in my life where if someone looked at me and said, that man is a pagan, he is not a believer, there's no way he could be, by looking at my life, you would be right. But by looking at my heart and what happened in my life, you would be wrong. Because I was 
I certainly didn't live like it. And this was the crossroads these Hebrew believers were on. And this is the warning he gave to them. And you all listen to me. I'll get to it here in just a minute. But apostasy in the Christian life is severe. It's severe. And he's going to give this warning. Because if you choose to go down one road in your life and you want to follow your way, listen, God will let you. He'll let you go. You want to dabble in drugs and this and that and think that you're just going to walk away from God and He'll let you go. His chastening hand will be after you all the while. Doesn't mean you're not a son, but you won't be in fellowship with Him. You won't be in blessing. You won't be laying up reward. But it doesn't mean you're not a believer. We're not of those who shrink back and go the other way, He says. But we want to be those who have faith and persevere. Now, can the words of a 12-year-old boy change your life? I just want to share this with you. It was very encouraging to me. Do you all know what the first words Jesus said were? He was 12, by the way. The first recorded words of our Lord. And this is what he said. If it'll come up. Nope, it didn't come up. This is what he said. My screen is blank. It's in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. He said, this is when his mother lost him in the temple. What did he say? Why are you searching for me? I must be about my father's business. You know, it struck me. I was telling my boys this week. It's amazing. You can study scripture. You can have more degrees than the thermometer hanging on the wall. And you always learn something. For the first time this week, it hit me. Those were his first words. First recorded words of our Lord. I must be about my father's business. Do you know what his last words were? Uh, Wes, my thing's not clicking there. He'll get over there. His last words were, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. He went to the cross and he died and gave the seven last sayings, and the last one was, it is finished. Now, as we think about the Christian life, that is a great bookend. We get saved, we must be about our Father's business. And every day of our life, faithfully, 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 step by step, encounter by encounter, decision by decision, we realize that God has appointed this for our day, and we're going to walk to please Him. And as one man said, years and days and hours and years and months go by and the next thing you know, we are at the end of our life. And hopefully, at the end of our life, we are ready to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, when we think about this, Robert Morgan wrote these words. He says, these two sentences... I must be about my Father's business, and I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do, are the verbal bookends of the life of Jesus. And they serve as our template, model, mold, and standard in life. What a challenge that is. Especially when we endure hardship. Did he? Yes, he did. Did he quit? No, he didn't. Did he think God didn't love him? No, he didn't. He knew that it was God's will for him to walk through. Father, take this cup from me, but if you don't, your will be done, not mine. That's hard to say, isn't it? He said it. So what does it mean to be faithful? What does faithfulness in the Christian life look like? 
It, it looks like what I just said. Hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, walking with the Lord. And before you know it, you'll bat your eyes and you'll be 70, 80 if we make it that long. So what are some lessons from Hebrews 10 that can help us endure in the Christian life? I I only have three. Three. What a quick sermon, right? Lesson number one, we need other people to help us finish well. You and I are not designed to walk the Christian life alone. If you are a loner as a Christian, you're going to struggle. By the way, share a little detail. I am an introvert if you use psychology. I mean, literally, I could be a hermit. I'm one of these weird guys. I could go back. It's a good thing I'm married to Karen. I could go back in the bush of Alaska and live off-grid, chop my own house down, drag in my own wood. I, I could do that and be fine. Now, it's amazing after you get saved and God puts something in your heart that you realize you cannot be a hermit in the Christian life. You have to be around people and with people and encouraging people and being encouraged by people, challenging and being, in, being challenged because the Christian not life is not made to live alone. And so people with introverted personalities, it's sometimes difficult. It's difficult for people to build relationships with them. But nevertheless, that is our responsibility. And we have to do that. We're all made different, but we all need each other. And if we are so foolish to think that we can live a Christian life successfully by ourselves, we are in for a grand disappointment. We need each other. Listen to what the writer says, and I pounded on this last week a little bit. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approach. We need one another. Do you all agree with me on that? Well, lesson number two. Say, boy, this is going to be a quick sermon. Lesson number two. Listen to this. At first, my, my, my principle was this. Apostasy is a severe thing. It has severe consequences. But the more I prayed about that, I walked on the treadmill yesterday. By the way, the best sermon I preached was yesterday on the treadmill, and nobody got to hear it. Sometimes I preach them in my dreams. And used to, I'd keep a book beside my bed, and I'd get it right down points because I'd change all my points that night. I've stopped doing that unless I remember it all the way through in the morning. But while I was walking on the treadmill, I thought, you know, this is not about apostasy being severe as much as it is this. There are trials in life, and they are as much a part of life as success. They should make us stronger, not make us quit. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what he lays out in chapter 12. When God allows a trial to sift into your life, he does it out of love. And even though you don't understand that, just like a child doesn't understand it, when a parent has to discipline them and correct them, and to make them do what is right. A child doesn't understand that. What do they say? You know, we see them do something they shouldn't do, we go over and correct them, and they say, quit being so mean to me. Why are you so mean to me? I'm not being mean to you. I'm trying to help you and show you what's right and how to be successful in life. Well, it hurts. I don't like it. For those of you that have children, isn't it something? 
may I encourage you this morning, don't let the whining and the discouragement and the badgering that they give stop you from being faithful. You keep being consistent. I can remember when my wife, bless her heart, with four little ones, was about to pull the hair out of her head. I'd come home after eight or ten hours being gone, and I mean, it was a wild house. Y'all imagine four boys? They could tear up a rock with a rubber hammer. (laughs) And somebody came to us one time and said this. They said, listen to me. The days are long, but the years are short. Press on. Press on. Trials are a part of life. They, shouldn't, they should make us stronger, not make us quit and walk away from the Lord. Listen to what this writer says. This is strong language now. Remember, this is one of his last warnings in the book. So he gets stronger and stronger and stronger as he goes. And this is what he writes. And by the way, see, there's so much here. Remember, this verse immediately follows, Stop forsaking to meet together as the manner of some is. It comes right after church attendance. If you walk away from meeting with the assembly and church attendance, and you go back to the Judaic system, I'm going to tell you something. You're in for a grand disappointment and judgment. Because that temple is going to be destroyed, and you're not going to have it. Listen to what he says. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, if you don't put this in context, boy, this makes some good preaching. I could scare all of you to death. Oh, if I go back, that means I can never have my sin forgiven if I do something intentional. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about a pathway in life here. If you choose to walk away from Jesus, this is not an individual sin. If you choose to walk away from Jesus and think you're going to find life, eternal life, any other place, I'm going to tell you something, you're dead wrong. Because after you've received the knowledge of the truth and you've become a believer, there no longer remains any other sacrifice for sin. Here's the only thing that remains. Physical judgment. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, you have to go back to the book of Numbers to find out where he's quoting this from. Do you remember the children of Israel when they grumbled against God, grumbled against his leadership? What did he do? He sent fiery serpents to consume them. There were different times that he judged them and some died. This is where he's referencing, just like he has throughout the whole book. A fury of fire to consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If that's the case, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, accepted Him as Savior, and then turns and walks away, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified? He was saved. And has outraged the spirit of grace. All three members of the Trinity there. Trampled under the foot of the Son of God. Pushed away the covenant that God the Father made. And then absolutely infuriated the Spirit who brought regeneration to life. What else remains for somebody that does that? Listen to what he says. We know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay And again, the Lord will judge his people. Those are quotes from Deuteronomy 32. 
where Moses is talking back about the wilderness wandering and how the people of Israel rebelled against him and he judged his own people. The writer's saying, do you think that God won't judge somebody that just turns and walks away from Jesus? A believer? Huh. Yes, he will. Then he ends by saying this. It's a, listen, Christian, that's fixing to walk away in apostasy. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, there are a lot of Christians who don't have that view of God. They think, well, I'll just get saved and do what I want to do. And, you know, if I feel like serving Jesus, I'll serve him. If not, I'll just, I'll have it my way, you know. I'm telling you, I'm just a spokesman. To walk away from Jesus is a severe thing because of trials, suffering, and things in life we can't explain. Don't do it. Don't do it. And by all means, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some people have. Don't do it. Well, there's a third lesson. Say, well, thank the Lord you didn't stop on that one. You're welcome. The third lesson is this. Suffering won't last forever. You know, you about have to be in suffering to say amen. But if you've ever endured suffering, misery, hardship, trials and depression, when you hear truths like this, it really is a blessing to the heart. Suffering will not last forever, but salvation and eternal life and rewards from our Savior will. They will. So I read this before. I'll read it again because God's Word is more important than anything I can say. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened... You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Three lessons to help us endure. We need people. Trials are a part of life. And what was the third one? Suffering will not last forever. When you realize those three things, they help you endure in the Christian life. Now, I want to share a story with you. A story. This is about a man and his wife named David and Sevilla Flood. Anybody ever heard of them? David and Sevilla Flood were an interesting couple. They were a young couple over in Switzerland who got saved and decided that they wanted to travel and go into missions and serve the Lord in a foreign land. And I'm going to pick up the story here. And the, the person on the left is their daughter. 
1921, David Flood, his young wife Sevilla, and their little two-year-old son left Sweden for the interior of Africa. They traveled with another young missionary couple named the Ericsons. These two couples were active church members. They sang in the choir, and Sevilla played a violin and was the church soloist. But they had committed their lives to taking the gospel to the unreached tribes in Africa. They were filled with enthusiasm and optimism as they literally hacked their way through the mountains of the Congo, eager to begin their ministry at some yet undetermined, unreached village. To their surprise, however, one village after another refused them entrance, convinced that they would anger the village gods and bring great trouble upon the people. After days of carrying their own supplies and luggage, they were hungry, weak, and sick. They prayed as they reached another village on the side of a mountain that they would finally rest and ministry opportunities would open. But the chief in that village was even more hostile than all the others. He demanded that they leave and leave now. They carried their supplies further up the mountain and put them in tents. They were too weary to set out again, so they decided to clear the brush and build themselves mud huts and do their best to reach these hostile villagers. During the next agonizing weeks, which stretched into agonizing months, David and Sevilla Flood struggled with learning Swahili, and along with the Ericsons, tried everything they could to reach out to the villagers below them. The village chief only tightened his grip on the people. The people were prohibited from even visiting the missionaries except for one little boy who was allowed to go up and sell them chickens and eggs to bring money to the camp. David was amazed at his wife's insistence that while they may never reach the village and probably never impact Africa, she would perhaps win this child for Jesus. Every time the boy visited their camp, she showered him with love and attention, and sure enough, one afternoon, the other missionaries watched as Sevilla knelt with the little boy and led him in a prayer of salvation. The boy had to keep his decision for Christ a secret in his village, lest he not be allowed to return or worse. Eventually, the Ericsons decided to leave David, Svea, and their little boy and return to an established mission station many miles away where they felt they would be more productive. Even though the Flood family battled malaria and desperately crude conditions, they decided, we will stay. Sometime later, Svea announced that she was expecting their second child. She was already weak and struggling physically, and David feared the worst. Sometime later, it was too late to travel through the jungles of the Belgian Congo without risking her life and the life of their unborn child. The baby would be born in their mud hut on the side of the mountain. The newly converted boy carried the news back to the village, and the chief surprisingly allowed one of the women to come up and serve as a midwife. By the time the baby was due, Sevilla Flood was weak with malaria. When the African midwife arrived, Sevilla was groaning in pain and suffering from high fever. When the little girl was born, Sevilla whispered that she was to be called Anna, a classic name for Swedish girls. Seventeen days later, Sevilla Flood died. Hopeless and filled with bitter rage, 
her husband David dug a crude grave for his 27-year-old wife who had left all and went into missions with him. How can I possibly care for my young son plus a sickly little baby without anyone, he said. So he hired a young man from the village along with several others, took his children down the mountain and to the mission station. He was finished with ministry, finished with the gospel, and certainly finished with God. As far as he was concerned, God had taken the life of his faithful bride and their ministry had been nothing less than a tragic waste of life. Returning to Sweden was a monumental task for David. He knew that he had no one to feed or care for his baby girl. The Eriksons, the couple who had went with them first, had been unable to have children, so David offered them the opportunity to adopt Anna. They were thrilled at the chance and agreed to do so. With that, David took his son and left the station never to return again. He never even looked back and never cared. Before Anna turned one year old, Joel and Bertha Erickson's food was poisoned by unbelieving, unbelieving natives. They died within days of each other. Anna was once again without parents, but she was soon claimed by another missionary couple and raised as their own daughter. When she was three years old, Anna and her adoptive parents left the mission field of Africa for good and eventually settled in the United States in South Dakota. Her Swedish name was now changed to Aggie. Aggie would later write that even as a young girl, she knew she was different. She would become known as the daughter of the missionary who died on the mountain, rescued by missionaries who were poisoned. And as her biography title says... She would become the girl without a country. By the way, that's Ana on the side. Eventually, Aggie attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis and married a godly young man who entered the ministry. Years went by. Aggie had no information about her father and knew very little of her past. She knew her parents' names, of course, and that their homeland was Sweden, but that was about it. She hardly had time to think about it with a husband and a family and a busy ministry. Her husband, Dewey Hurst, had become president of a Bible college in Washington. One day, unexpectedly, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She had no idea who had sent it, and she couldn't read the words. But she turned the pages, and one photograph arrested her attention. It was a picture of a small white cross planted on the earth over an obvious burial site, and on the cross was written the name Sevilla Flood. She immediately took the magazine to a college professor who could translate the article to her. The professor translated as she read, telling how two missionaries, pushing through the African jungle, camping at night and traveling by day, came across a village in the Belgian Congo and found the burial plot they had now photographed. They began to inquire and found out that this was the grave of a missionary who had died shortly after giving birth to a baby girl, but not before leading one African boy to Christ. The woman's widowed husband had left their daughter in the hands of fellow missionaries. The article continued saying that sadly, Sevilla Flood didn't live long enough to learn that the little African boy they had won to Christ on that mountaintop in time went on to gain permission from the village chief to start and build a school. Gradually, this now mature young man, teacher and leader, 
taught the gospel of Christ, and all his students came to trust in Jesus Christ as well. They evangelized their parents, and even the chief became a Christian. Now that village had 600 believers and an active church professing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. All this came from the sacrifice and the tears of David and primarily his wife, Sevilla Flood. Aggie couldn't believe the news. She began to cry and thank God for letting her learn the truth of her parents and their sacrifice and the harvest of fruit now. For their 25th wedding anniversary, the Bible College gave the hearse a vacation to Sweden where, among other things, Aggie could search for her father. It wasn't difficult to find her family. David Flood, disgruntled and bitter, had remarried and had four more children before his second wife had also now died. Now an old man, he was wasting away as an alcoholic and professed agnostic who dared anyone to even mention the name of God in his presence. After a joyous meeting with her half-brothers and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing their father. Her siblings weren't too optimistic about the idea. Their father had become deeply bitter, had little to do with any of them, and most of all, hated God vehemently. They warned her that whenever he heard the name of God, he flew into an outburst of rage. Aggie was determined to see him. She eventually made it to his little apartment where the door was answered by a housekeeper. Inside his room, there were liquor bottles on every windowsill. The table was covered with more bottles. And in the far corner was a small, wrinkled old man lying on a rumpled bed, his head turned away, looking toward the wall. Diabetes and a stroke had confined him to this one room for the past three years. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry. Ana, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened and the tears flowed. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. And he turned his face back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued undaunted. Papa, I've got a little story to tell you, and it's true. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win the whole village to Jesus. One seed you planted just kept growing and growing, and today there are 600 African people serving the Lord Jesus because you were faithful to the call God put on your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. The old man turned back to look into his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed. He began to talk. And by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to the God he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. Aggie and her husband soon had to return to America. And within a few weeks, David Flood entered eternity. The biographer writes, let me give you an addendum to this story. A few years later, Aggie and her husband attended an evangelism conference in London. A report was given from the nation of Zeri, formerly the Belgian Congo, by the superintendent of the National Church Association. He represented over 100,000 baptized believers. 
He spoke of the amazing spread of the gospel in his nation. Afterward, Aggie rushed forward to ask him if he had ever heard of her parents, David and Sevilla Flood. Yes, ma'am, the man replied in French. His words translated into English for her. It was Sevilla Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. He embraced her in a long, sobbing hug and then continued, You must come to Africa to see, because your mother is the most famous person in our history. She agreed, and after months of planning, Aggie and her husband made the long journey back to the place of her birth. They eventually arrived at the outpost where she had been given by her father to the Ericsons. This was the outpost where she had lived as a toddler, playing in the dirt with her African friends, learning the Swahili language. There she visited the graves of her first adoptive parents. Then they drove several miles to the village her parents had desperately tried to reach. Only this time, there were hundreds of villagers waiting and cheering as she came into view. They had built arches covered with flowers waiting for her reception. Eventually, the pastor of the village took her up on a hill to a flat place beneath the groves of the trees. This is where her parents' mud house once stood. This was where she was born. He then pointed her to a simple grave overlooking the valley below. Marking the grave was a still small white cross, and on it was written, Sevilla Flood. Aggie was standing where her mother had stood, declaring the gospel to one small boy. Now she knew the harvest of the seed her mother had sown. Later in the church with believing villagers crowded around, the pastor read the words of Psalm 126.5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. God knows what it means to weep. God knows what it means to suffer loss. God knows what it means to sow seeds that do not seem to bear fruit. But God also knows the end. He knows that tears of sorrow, loss, frustration, pain, and grief will soon be wiped away, replaced by indescribable joy. And the fruit of his gospel seed, you and me, and the fruit of our efforts, the extent that we may never know on this earth, along with David and Sevilla Flood and hundreds of African villagers and millions of others, all the fruit of his harvest will live forever. Don't quit. Father, thank you for your word and for the challenge to endure, even in hardship. We praise you and we thank you for the wonderful story, but most importantly, the wonderful truth that we, <laughs> we're not home yet. We thank you for that. I pray that you encourage anyone today who may be tempted to quit. Strengthen their knees. Give them spines of steel as they walk this world and live for you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.